So we are in Exodus chapters three and four. Some years ago, Duke University professor Dan Ariely wrote a book about the psychology of dishonesty, essentially, and what makes us tell falsehoods. And here's a, a sentence or a paragraph from that book that I like. He said, over the course of many years of teaching, I've noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly the week before final exams and before papers are due. Our students up here in front, they're taking notes. So uh, guess which relative most often dies right before finals? Any guesses? Grandma, you got it, ding, ding. So uh, another research study has shown grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm, 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. And it gets even worse if the student isn't doing well in his or her classes. So students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma before finals. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens is their grandchildren's GPA. So the, the moral of the story is, if you are a grandmother, don't let your grandkids go to college. It'll kill you, especially if they're stupid. So we all have excuses, right? We all have reasons why we can't do what we are supposed to do. And that's even true of us as Christians. It's even true of us in our relationship with God. I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I don't know what your walk with Christ is like, what you're struggling with, what you're disobedient in or obedient in. I just know that in a room this size, there are bound to be people who know that they should be more involved in some form of ministry. Maybe even you even know what God wants you to do. He wants you to join this particular ministry or, or teach this class or minister to this person, but you haven't done it yet. There are bound to be people in this room who are, are still not giving of their finances to the, God, to the kingdom of God, and you've felt guilty about it, you've made excuses for it, I know there are probably people in this room who would say, I know that I need to go beyond just sitting in a crowd and become part of the body of Christ. I need to join a life group and, and get to know people so we can rub off on each other and encourage one another. I'm sure there are people in this room, sad to say, who have fractured relationships with family members or friends that you know you could do more to make reconciliation with that person. And as a church body, we have made a commitment. We've made a vision that over the next eight and a half years, we're, we're determined to have 10,000 transforming relationships with people who are in need. Kids who need mentors, married couples who are struggling and need a, another married couple to come alongside and, and kind of help them through, help them navigate these waters. Folks who don't know Christ and we become that person who, who just sort of befriends them and over time shows them, hey, Christians aren't all nuts. And there's something to this gospel business. There's so many permutations, so many possibilities of transforming relationships. But if we're going to reach 10,000, that means every one of you have to be involved. That means everybody from the, the kids to the students to all the way to the, the oldest senior adult life group has to say, it's my responsibility to be on the lookout for people who I can invest in. And yet with everything that I just said, there's an excuse. There's a reason why not to. I know this about myself. I know it's true of you as well. Between the world and the flesh and the devil, you will always be able to come up with a reason why now is not the time for me to get involved.
Now is not the time for me to take that step. Maybe when the kids are older, maybe when I've got more money, maybe when I'm more mature, maybe when I know more about the scriptures, maybe when, maybe when, guess what? There will, if you're waiting for a time when it's going to be easy and convenient to do the will of God, it will never happen. You know when the time is to obey what God is telling you to do? Right now. Because every day you spend not obeying is a day you're going to later regret. And most of all, if you're a person who has never yet made a commitment to Jesus Christ and received his grace and been saved, every day you spend waiting to follow him and and become a believer in him and a follower of him like Bob and Diana today, you're going to regret that day. You're going to say, why did I wait so long? See, Moses understands where, where we're coming from. Last week, we saw how Moses was born into a time of incredible oppression. His his people had been slaves for 400 years, and he was literally born into a death sentence. His mother was commanded to throw him, along with all other Israelite male babies, into the Nile, and she defied those orders. And there was that series of five different women who, who, through their courage and faith, saved Moses' life. And at the age of 40, he commits a crime and and flees for his life and ends up in the deserts of Midian, far from the palace of Egypt, tending his father-in-law's sheep. And one day he is taking those sheep around the base of Mount Sinai when suddenly he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Somehow, although it's a flame, the the leaves are still green and the branches are still sound. And he goes to to see what's going on. What, What is with this bush? And a voice speaks out of it and says, I'm the Lord God, the God of your fathers. You are to go to to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the man who enslaves my people and say, let my people go. And immediately Moses begins to make excuses. Moses, in fact, makes five different excuses that we're going to talk about today. And what I want you to see as we talk through these five excuses is, number one, how does God answer him? Because in all five, God gives a different response, and yet all five responses have one thing in common. And I want to see if you can pick up on it. And secondly, I want you to imagine, what would God say to you about your excuse? Whatever is standing in the way of you going that next step that he wants you to take. So let's start with objection number one. Moses' first excuse to God is, who am I? Who am I? Verse 11 of chapter three. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. If you remember last week, Moses, we left Moses when he was 40 years old. In the prime of life, he had just killed an Egyptian with his bare hands in hopes that it would spark a revolution. It didn't. But it just sort of of shows you the kind of man he was, a man of action, a man of determination, a man of courage. He's changed a lot in 40 years, hasn't he? Now he says, who am I? I'm nobody. I've got no skills. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm an old man beaten down by life who's been tending sheep in the desert. I'm baked by the sun. I've got, no, I've got nothing to offer you. And, and how often do you and I talk that way about ourselves, especially when it comes to spiritual issues? You may be cocky in some area of your life, but when it comes to spiritual issues, how many of us say, oh, I'm not much of a Christian? And we think that means we're, we're humble, but that's not humility at all. It's not humble to say I'm nothing. Humility is knowing that God has given you particular gifts and abilities and callings and resources and things that you can offer that no one else can offer in quite the same way you can. And yet not being a boaster or a bragger or someone who's self-centered or loves to talk about himself. It's not humble to say I'm nothing. 
That's just low self-esteem. When Moses says, who am I? God says, what difference does that make? Who am I is what matters. Remember, when you read the scriptures, when God chooses someone and says, I want you to do some great thing, it's almost always the person you and I would not have chosen. When, when Israel was facing this massive military invasion by the Midianites, God chooses as his lead general for his uh, fighting force, a man named Gideon, who by his own admission was the most weak, cowardly man in all of Israel. When God needed a prophet to go speak to the people and command them to turn away from their idols and back to God, he first chose Isaiah who said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've just, I've used my mouth to say all kinds of awful things. How can I now say God's things? Then he goes to Jeremiah a generation later and Jeremiah says, who's gonna listen to me? I'm just a kid. When God needed a woman to give birth to the Messiah, he comes to Mary whose first response is, but Lord, I'm a virgin. I mean, there's all these women out here who are having babies. Why not use one of them? And when God chose someone to explain the gospel to us in the clearest possible terms, in the book of Romans, in Ephesians, and all through half the New Testament to spread the gospel throughout the Roman world, he chooses, of all people, the guy who used to kill Christians and a man named Saul of Tarsus. So yeah, if you've ever been the kid that was picked last in dodgeball, that's the one God chooses. If you feel inadequate, guess what? You're qualified. Congratulations. So God says to Moses, what difference does it make who you are? What matters is who I am. I will be with you. And by the way, because I am with you, you cannot fail. The only way you can fail is if you stop following me. And once you succeed and you lead the children of Israel out of bondage, you're going to worship me here on this mountain. And the reason he told him that was for two reasons. Number one, for him to know when it happened, for him to look back and say, oh yeah, this is the way God said it would go. So obviously it was him and not me. But the second reason was he wanted him to understand, I'm setting you free so that you can worship me. That's Christian freedom. Christian freedom is not, hey, I'm free. Now I can do whatever I want, consequences free. That's not freedom. That's an eight-year-old with a hand grenade, right? Nothing good happens. That's you and me. We need structure. We need a guide. We need a shepherd. Real freedom is to follow our shepherd. And that's what Moses is told by God. So the second objection, I don't know your name. Verse 13 of chapter three, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now it sounds like Moses is saying, I don't know your name. And maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe over 400 years of slavery, the Israelites have literally forgotten who God is. But I want to suggest to you a secondary interpretation. And this is what I believe. I believe that the children of Israel remembered who God was. They've been told his name in the book of Genesis over and over again. I think what they were saying though is, Lord, what can you do about this? See, the name of God is Yahweh. Actually, we don't know if that's how it was pronounced. If you look at the Old Testament and those, those manuscripts that were copied over and over again, those scribes who dedicated their lives to hand copying the word of God, whenever you see the name of God in the word of God, it is spelled Y-H-W-H. 
No vowels, just those four letters. By the way, that, that four-letter sequence is called the tetragrammaton, which I just threw in there because I think it's a cool word. Tetragrammaton. Makes you sound smart. Or it makes you sound like you're playing with a toy that is a robot that changes into a Corvette. But either way, I like the word. But the important thing is the Israelite scribes, when they would copy down the name of God, they would just write Y-H-W-H without the vowels because they were afraid that if they said the, word, the name of God out loud, they might accidentally take his name in vain. How different is that than our age today when we just, we, we say OMG all the time. We use God's name in vain constantly. So that's the name of the Lord that he shares here. I am is what it means. By the way, the Israelites, instead of calling him Yahweh, they would call him Adonai, which means Lord. In your English Bibles today, whenever you read the word Lord and it's spelled in all capital letters, that's the Tetragrammaton. That's how English translators have chosen to render that name. So Moses is bound to have heard that. So what is he saying to God? Well, remember, a person's name described their character. In other words, when you were born in that, in that culture, your parents named you for what they hoped you would be. They gave you a name like righteous man or woman of valor. And if you grew up to be something different than that, people started calling you what you were. For instance, in 2 Samuel, there's a character named Nabal, which literally means fool. I guarantee you his mom and dad did not name him fool when he emerged from the womb. He earned that name through the course of his life. And there is no truth to the rumor that he later became pastor of First Baptist Church. Okay. So when Moses says in the first objection, who am I? He's not saying I've got amnesia and I can't remember who I am. He's saying, what is there in my character that in any way indicates I can lead people to freedom? So when he says to God, when I go to the Israelites and I say, God has told me to, to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, they're going to say, what is this God's name? In other words, what, what can this God do about it? 400 years we've been in slavery. He's never shown up. Why should we trust in him now? And God's answer is, because I am what I am. I know what I'm doing. I'm the God who made the whole universe in spoken words. I'm the God who flooded the earth and saved the, the, the people who were on the ark. I, I am the God who made a baby in the womb of 90-year-old Sarah. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can trust me. I will do what I said. Third objection. What if they don't believe me? Verse one of chapter four, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. By the way, I just have to say, I think Moses is probably right in this objection. I think if I were an Israelite and I'd been a slave my whole life and my father and my father's father and so on and so on, and I see this sun-baked 80-year-old wild man come wandering in from the desert saying, I've heard the voice of God. I wouldn't believe that either. So I think Moses is on to something here. Look how God responds. Verse two, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. By the way, you think it took a little bit of faith to obey that command? Yeah, I'd say so. 
So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put, out, put your hand inside of your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh." If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, let me ask you to, to think about this for just a second. We live in a New Testament era. We've got the entire Bible in our hands. We've got the Holy Spirit in our hearts. How do we today prove that a preacher is qualified? How do we know that a preacher is someone we should listen to, whether he's the pastor of the church you attend or whether he's somebody you see on TV or hear on a podcast? How do you test that preacher? The New Testament tells us two things. Number one, make sure they are preaching the true word. You have the scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit. You can test every word that I say. In fact, I urge you to do that. If I ever say something and you go, huh, that doesn't sound right tested against the word of God. If you see the word of God denies what I said, please, I am begging you, come talk to me because we're part of the same family. And either one of three things is true. Either I'm wrong and I need to be corrected. And yes, you have the authority to correct me face to face. Number two, I misspoke and I need to get up here and say, y'all, I said something wrong the other day. I need to correct it. Number three, you misheard. But either way, as members of the same family, we need to be on the same page. So number one, is he speaking the truth? Number two, is he living it out? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. That's how you know the difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. You need to be able to observe the life of the person you are following spiritually and make sure they are living out what they're preaching. They need to be someone of humility, someone who exhibits the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They need to be somebody who is emotionally mature, who treats people the way they should be treated. If I don't do that, again, come talk to me. Say, Jeff, I saw you do or say something the other day that really bothered me. And that's part of being part of the same spiritual family. As a side note, I know a lot of us have a famous preacher or two that we really admire and appreciate, and there's nothing wrong with that. I have those myself, but this is why you need to hold on to those guys loosely because you can't observe their life. You don't know the way they live. And as we've seen in recent years, people can have this massive influential ministry and turn out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. So that's how you measure a preacher. But the Israelites couldn't do that. Number one, they didn't have the written word of God yet. Number two, it was time to break out of slavery. They didn't have time to observe Moses' life. So this is why God gives him these three miracles as a way, sort of a, an express lane way to say, listen, I'm from God, let me prove it to you. And by the way, the three miracles are not random. Artwork shows us that, Egyptian artwork shows us that Pharaoh wore a, a, a gold snake on his headdress. And we know from uh, Genesis 2, that, that, or Genesis 3, that is, that 
the devil took the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden. So in that first miracle, that first sign, God is saying, I have power over your physical earthly enemy and your unseen spiritual enemy at the same time. Leprosy, the second sign. Leprosy was the most feared disease in all the world. If you came down with a rash of any kind, people immediately avoided you because if it was leprosy, it was the end of your life. You would die slowly, painfully with everyone who knew you and loved you shunning you because that's how feared the disease was. And God in giving the second sign is saying, I am more powerful than the thing you fear the most. That third miracle, that third sign though, notice he doesn't just say pour water on the ground. He says, take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. Why? It is impossible to overstate how important the Nile river was to the Egyptian culture and economy. It was their source of fresh water. It was what fertilized their farmlands, which made it the, the most fertile farmlands in that entire region. Look at Egypt today. Look at a map of Egypt today, and, and the cities are still clustered around that river. And by the way, in addition, they worshiped the Nile as a god. They had a god named Hapi, H-A-P-I, who they believed controlled the Nile River. One of the purposes of the Exodus was God saying, not just I can set my people free, but proving to the Egyptians, your gods are not real. You need to turn away from them. And third, remember the greatest atrocity the Egyptians perpetrated against the Israelites was forcing them to throw their babies into the Nile River. When that sign took place, God would be saying, look at the blood in that river. That is my wrath against you for what you've done to innocent people. Fourth sign, fourth objection, Moses says, but I can't speak well. Chapter four, verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I've heard and perhaps you've heard too that uh, the thing people fear the most more than anything else is public speaking. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld used to have a bit where he'd talk about how there was a famous survey that said the number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death. And so his point was, if you're in a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Maybe not. Maybe slightly overstated, but... Moses says, I can't do this, Lord. I can't stand in front of the most powerful man in the world and, and tell him, you must let my people go and argue him into this, this incredible thing that he would do. Some think that Moses was saying, I have a speech impediment. Maybe he was. Or maybe he was just saying, he's Pharaoh. He's intelligent. He's, he's sophisticated. I've been tending sheep for 40 years. He'll talk circles around me. He'll ask me questions I don't know how to answer. Which, does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like what we say when God tells us, hey, I want you to go talk to that person over there. God says, Moses, I made your mouth. I can put words into it. I know who you are. I know your limitations. I called you. I didn't call you to make you uh, look like a fool. I called you to use you to accomplish something great. So trust me. I will put the words in your mouth. Fifth objection, send someone else. Moses is done by now. He's got nothing else to say. Verse 13 of chapter four, but he said, oh my Lord, please send 
someone else. In Hebrew, it's literally like this. Send, I beg of you, by the hand of whom you will send. In other words, Lord, anybody but me. And here's what God says, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And here we see the kindness and the severity of God, God's justice and God's mercy. Because God says to Moses, okay, I wanted to use you, but now I'll bring in your brother Aaron. He calls him Aaron the Levite, by the way. Levite means he's from the tribe of Levi. There were 12 tribes of Israel. The Levite tribe was the one that eventually became the priestly tribe. In fact, Aaron became the high priest. And there are some who believe that that was Moses' original calling, but God gave it to his brother because he kept making excuses. There are consequences for disobeying God. And yet, and yet, God doesn't give up on Moses. God doesn't say, okay, fifth objection, that's too much, you're out. Go back to tending sheep, rot in the wilderness for all I care, I'm gonna use someone else. No, he sticks with Moses. Isn't that encouraging? How many times you and I fail and God never does say, okay, I'm done with this one. She's let me down too many times. He's, he's embarrassed me one time too many. No, he will forgive and he will use you and he will bless you as long as you follow him. So think about those five objections and their answers again. Have you caught on? Have you, have you seen what the commonality is? Let's go through it again. First objection, who am I? God says, doesn't matter. I will be with you. Second objection, I don't know your name. God says, I am what I am. Third objection, what if they don't believe me? God says, no problem. I will be with you and will give you these signs. Fourth objection, I can't speak well. God says, I made your mouth. I will give you the words. Fifth objection, send somebody else. I will. I'll send Aaron and you and I'll be with you both and you'll succeed as long as you follow me. Do you see one word that all five of those answers have in common? It's, a, it's actually one letter. It's the letter I. God is saying, I'm the answer. When I'm around, there are no more excuses. When I'm around, there are more, no more limitations. There is no reason for you not to be able to accomplish everything I've called you to do because I am what I am. You know that, that saying that was big about five or 10 years ago, it is what it is? I hate that because it means absolutely nothing. And yet we say it like it's really profound. Well, you know, it is what it is. But when God says, I am what I am, what he's saying is, I'm the answer. That's it. It's all you need to know. Don't know what to say? I am what I am. I'll take care of it. Don't know how you're going to get it done? I am what I am. I'll give you the power. Don't know how you could possibly come back from this terrible mistake you've made? I am what I am. I forgive this stuff. I make new life. That is what I do. So let me ask you again. What is stopping you from doing whatever God has called you to do? In fact, let me go back a step further. What has God called you to do that you haven't done yet? Very likely there are a lot of you who would say, well, I'm not sure. So let me ask the question a different way. 
if you were to give everything that you have, if you were to be 100% committed to God with nothing held back, if you were to be the absolute spiritual maximum person you could possibly be, what would be different about that person than the person you are right now? Think about it. You don't have to answer out loud, but you do need to answer that question. And then ask the question, what's stopping me? Not enough time, not enough money, not enough training, not enough confidence. Maybe you're an introvert and talking to people is terrifying. Listen, again, there will never be a convenient time to obey the Lord. But if he's commanded you to do it, if you know it's right, don't let anything stop you. When I was a kid, I used to obsess about finding God's will. If I could just find God's will for my life, then I would never make a mistake. I would go into the right career field and I'd be a massive success. I'd marry the right person and we'd be blissfully happy and I would make lots of money and I'd I'd change the world and great things, uh, nothing but great things would happen to me. And, And then I realized something. God doesn't usually say, here's the roadmap. He says, here's the next step. Here's the next turn. So what is the next step for you? And why should God give you any more light? You're probably asking all kinds of questions. Lord, give me an answer here. Give me an answer there. And he's like, okay, yeah, but there's this thing I told you to do a while back you haven't done yet. Do that and then I'll give you the next answer. What's stopping you? Moses went on to fulfill the will of God and set his people free by the power of the Almighty. It's a great story. I hope you'll stick with us through this whole series. But late in his life in the book of Deuteronomy, he said to the people, listen, someday God's gonna raise up another prophet like me. He didn't know the fullness of what he was saying. He just knew the Holy Spirit had told him, there's gonna be somebody greater than me comes along afterwards. And the person he was talking about was Jesus. And when Jesus came along, like Moses, he came into a time when his people were oppressed. Like Moses, he was called to lead them to victory. But unlike Moses, he did it at the cost of his own life. And unlike Moses, he didn't just set them free physically. He set them free spiritually and gave them eternal life. And I got to tell you, if I'm the son of God and God says, my heavenly father says to me, lay down your life for humanity, I can come up with a dozen excuses right off the top of my head without even having to think about it, why that's not a good idea. But Jesus never offered an excuse. Never said, I can't do this. Never said it's not right. He did the will of his father. He laid down his life. And for that reason, you and I can be forgiven and we can be free. So let me ask one more time, what's stopping you from following the one who is the great I am?